Hi, everybody. Welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. All right, Joe, welcome back to Lectures on Lacan. We are starting here with Seminar 14, The Logic of Fantasy. Um, it's a wild leap that we're making. So the previous two lectures that we did, one was on Seminar 11. We had a four or five part series on 11. And then we, from the end of 11, built a little two part series on the drive. Um, the drive is available. It's out there. You can find it through our Substack, lecturesonlacan.substack.com. Uh, seminar 11 is out there too. So you can go to these materials. We're going to be building on some of what we did in those uh, seminars. And, and, I'm going to, and I'm going to try and review some of it that's relevant here as well. Um, but if you hear me refer to stuff from those previous um, series, particularly on the drive, which is where we were uh, just a few weeks ago, um, rest assured that you can find those lectures. Um, the lectures on the drive are freely available at our Substack and um, have at them. Um, the other thing to, to note here is that we're skipping some seminars. I was thinking that maybe we would just jump right into uh, seminar 12 and then just keep going from there. But after some thought, I figured we better just jump to 14, which will then set us up, I think, um, for perhaps um, a stop at 16 and 17, or perhaps jumping straight to 19 and 20. At this point, given where we are, we've read the first 60 or 70 pages of seminar 14. It's really looking like the jump from here is to 19 and to 20. Uh, but we'll see. I haven't read this seminar. I'm eager to see where it goes. And so I'll be working through it with you. And that's what we're going to be doing here is working through key passages and really just trying to iron out what Lacan is doing in the opening sections of this seminar, which is very heavy with logic, um, maybe more than it needs to be, because at some level, he's really just talking about some pretty simple um, set theoretical phenomena. But let's start uh, getting into it as best we can um, and try to provide ourselves with a solid conceptual um, basis to discuss what this seminar is about. So first and foremost, let's start with some basic Lacanian stuff. Um, as we all know, and oftentimes all too well, lack is a core concept in Lacanian theory and technique. And it's such a core concept, it's very key. I mean, frankly, I'm sick of talking about it, but it is a very key concept in Lacan, and especially because in the English tradition, there's been such a heavy emphasis on what Lacan does with desire. And that's really what we learned in our last series on the drive, among other things, is that all of this emphasis on desire doesn't actually do justice to Lacan's decision in seminar 11, which I take to be one of the great seminars, um, to choose drive instead of desire as the fourth fundamental concept of psychoanalysis. 
So anytime you hear people yammering on about desire and lack and the split subject, which is all good and important stuff, um, think to yourself and perhaps even pose the question, if all this is extremely relevant to Lacanian theory and technique, why does he choose drive in his basic introductory seminar to his work as the fourth fundamental concept? Now, lack is also relevant to drive. Um, I would say we could probably split it a little bit and say that you have lack relevant to desire um, and probably um, loss relative to drive, but we don't need to get into that right now. What we know first and foremost is that lack is fundamental. And what I would suggest emphasizing the word logic here, more than fantasy at this stage in the seminar, logic, the logic of lack in Lacan is structural. That comes through very clearly at the start of 14. The logic of lack in Lacan's thought is structural. And I would say that the structural lack at the center of Lacan's thought is threefold, and maybe if we push it fourfold. Here are the three great moments in my reading. First, sexuation. This is sexuation with regard to the living organism. These are the straits of sexuality that Lacan discusses um, in his early to mid 60s work. So think about seminar 11 and dip back into our series on the drive if you wanna learn more about that. Sexuation is the first great experience of lack because what is removed or subtracted or placed under erasure in the experience of passing through the bipolarities of sex is this polymorphous, almost perverse relationship to the body that in hindsight we call libido. This is all over 11. Um, we might even check out a couple passages today. The second great um, structural lack in Lacan coordinates with this concept of alienation. If sexuation is an experience of lack that the living organism undergoes, alienation is an experience of lack that happens with regard to the subject, the living subject as Lacan sometimes calls what comes after this living organism, um, a split subject. Alienation is the process, sometimes referred to as castration, that gives us split subjectivity. The focus here in alienation is on the lack experienced by the self or the subject. The third great structural lack in Lacan coordinates with this notion of separation. Alienation and separation, these are two terms that are popping big in seminar 11. Um, separation has to do more with the lack in the big other, with the fact that the big other is barred, that there's always something missing from its claim to totalize. And, and that's how this breaks down. Sexuation with regard to the living organism, alienation with regards to the subject, and separation with regards to the other. In each case, you see a structural lack popping up. Um, you, yeah, the first is a real lack. Sexuation is produced atop what Lacan calls a real lack. And alienation and separation um, are, are mired in kind of imaginary and symbolic lacks. Um, the fourth lack, uh, we'll see if we get to it. Um, it's, it's what comes after separation. 
it's beyond um, the symbolic and the drive that it cultivates. Let's just slow down though for a second. This first um, lack around sexuation, it figured largely in our concluding lectures on seminar 11. Um, and of course, in our recent series on the drive, if you're looking for a quick summary of what this is about, you can check out page 205 of seminar 11. And it might just be worth us reading it aloud here because I know there are some of you um, here with us this morning in California time, um, evening European time, so forth, um, who weren't with us for 11 and who weren't with us for the drive. So let me just rehearse this passage with you very quickly on page 205. Actually, 204 and 205 are pretty lit pages for understanding uh, the first couple of lacks I was just describing. At the top of 205, if you have seminar 11 in front of you, it's an easy text to find online. I'm looking here at, of course, the Alan Sheridan translation at the top of page 205. Lacan talks about a real earlier lack prior to that of alienation which is situated at the advent of the living being, that is to say, as sexed reproduction. I'm about seven lines down from the top of page 205, if you're catching up here. The real lack is what the living being loses, that part of himself qua living being in reproducing himself through the way of sex. This lack is real because it relates to something real, namely the living being. By being subject to sex, has fallen under the blow of individual death. Now, we spent a lot of time working on this in our previous series, so I'm not going to mess around too much with it, except to just remind you that part of what happens at the level of the species is that in order for the species to live on, the individuals of which it is comprised at any given moment must die. So, as soon as sexed reproduction, becomes uh, the structure in which the living organism is put. Um, and, and what Lacan is, it could, could very well be referring to here, I think there's ample evidence in seminar 11 to support, is a theory of positionality and a theory of um, gendered subject positions. He's talking about the way that society genders us and beneath that sexualizes us by forcing us into these binary categories. And the straits of sexuality for Lacan are binary. So he's talking about how this is a socially constructed experience that the living organism, the infant, the worm that comes out early and has to pass through. And in passing through it experiences their first um, lack or their first loss, um, a loss that can be recovered as we learned um, by way of the drive. Uh, but for here, the emphasis on death is important because what we see in the symbolic is also an experience of death because the signifier can make present things that are absent. The signifier in this sense um, allows for the death of the thing, not das Ding, but the death of stuff. Here though, we're seeing a different relation to death with the idea of just raw mortality. The fact that every individual member of a species dies, um, even though the species may live on. Whether that becomes true for, for our species, we'll see in the next probably couple hundred years. Anyway, you can read more about this um, sexuation and this real lack 
205 is great. There are other pages. And again, um, see our earlier stuff on this. What I want to emphasize here, though, is on 204 or 205 of Seminar 11, you also see this notion of real lack coupled with another lack. And this is the lack that points us to alienation. This is a really great section of Lacan where he just spells some of this stuff out. So if you back up from the top of 205 and go to the bottom of 204, Lacan starts at the very bottom of 204 of Seminar 11 saying that two lacks overlap here. The first emerges from the central defect around which the dialectic of the advent of the subject to his own being in relation to the other turns. This is what I just referred to as alienation. So we just read about the primordial experience of lack that I refer to as sexuation. And now we're looking at what follows this earlier experience of lack, um, which is alienation. And it has to do with the defect around which the dialectic of the advent of the subject to his own being in relation to the other turns. So alienation has to do with the advent of the subject in and through the symbolic, the big other. In other words, Lacan says at the top of 205, by the fact that the subject depends on the signifier and that the signifier is first of all in the field of the other. This is a great little summary of what alienation means in terms of these structural lacks that are at the core of Lacan's thought, or at least the, the second one in my book known as alienation. <clears throat> There's more on this too, in fact, really good stuff in 11. And I'm emphasizing this because it's fundamental to understanding what's happening in 14. I don't think you can understand what Lacan is doing in 14 unless you are trained in post-Cantorian set theory or a terrific reader of Badiou. If you want to figure out like where you're going to start with Badiou, he'll often tell you start with, with 19. But um, I think if you push Badiou a little bit on this, his, his real starting place for his entire project would probably start in 14. In fact, for, for Badiou, you can ask him, he'll, he'll tell you that there are, there are two really difficult ideas for him in Lacan. Um, the first is love, and the second is Lacan's notion of the one. And it's really in, in 14 that the one, if you see us on Instagram, you know I've been posting about this recently, and, and if you subscribe to our Substack, it's also popping there a little bit. The one is a really fundamental concept for Lacan, especially in his later work. That's what we're going to try and get hashed out today and probably next week as well. Um, so if you got Badu under your belt, it'll be easy to understand what we're doing here. If you're a mathematician and you've read Cantor, it'll also be easy to understand what Lacan's up to here. Um, if you're a symbolic logician, good luck. I don't know what you'd be doing here, but you might be able to find uh, this easy as well. For the rest of us, start with 11. It's seminar 11 that's going to pave the way for understanding what Lacan is doing in 14. That's why we're here. That's why I'm starting us by taking a giant step back. We take this giant step back in order to start taking some preliminary and tentative steps forward into 14. So in that spirit, let's stick with this and back up even further. Page 203 of Seminar 11, 
also gives us a nice rundown of this notion of alienation. <clears throat> and I'm here maybe uh, five, six, seven, eight lines from the bottom. The sentence begins the other. And I'll read it aloud. So if you don't have the text in front of you, you can still just um, close your eyes, think you're somewhere else, and imagine. <laughs> Listen, okay, anyway. The other is the locus in which is situated the chain of the signifier that governs whatever may be made present of the subject. It is the field of that living being in which the subject has to appear. Now, this is important. The other, and here think the symbolic, the field of language, the field of social norms, conventions, and so forth, is the locus or the location or the site in which is situated the chain of the signifier, think language again, that governs whatever may be made present of the subject. Whatever can be made present of the subject is gonna occur by way of the signifier. And the signifier is governed by the rules of the symbolic, of society, of the big other. So whatever can show up and appear by way of the subject as a representation, as a metaphor, as a figure, figure is a good way to think about it, all figurations of the split subject that appear and that are addressed are occurring according to the structural logics of language, of signification, which are governed in this field known as the symbolic, the big other. These terms all cluster together around this field, a phenomenological field, where the subject can appear, but only if it plays by the rules and only to the extent that the rules exist for it at the level of the symbolic. So we're starting on 203 and just starting to get a little forward here on this topic. We can jump past 204 and 205 and start instead with page 206, I think is a pretty good one to start here. Um, I'm tempted to just jump right to the pen tab and start diagramming this stuff, but I think it's nicer to actually hear some of this read. 206 to 208 does a really good job of talking about this second structural lack in the field of alienation that we were just talking about. And it comes down to this, section two, which begins on page 206 of 11. Everything emerges from the structure of the signifier. This structure is based on what I first called the function of the cut, and which is now articulated in the development of my discourse as the topological function of the rim. And this is gonna be very important. In fact, there's a very real sense in which what is at stake in the later part of our readings in 14 is this rim-like structure, which for Lacan comes down to the mathematical notion of the edge. So hold this in mind. The relation of the subject to the other is entirely produced in a process of gap. Without this, anything could be there. The relations between beings and the real, including all of you animated beings out there, might be produced in terms of inversely reciprocal relations. This is what psychology and the whole area of sociology is trying to do and may succeed in doing 
as far as the mere animal kingdom is concerned. For the capture of the imaginary is enough to motivate all sorts of behavior in the living being. Psychoanalysis reminds us that human psychology belongs to another dimension. To maintain this dimension, philosophical analysis might have sufficed, but it has proved itself to be inadequate for lack of any adequate definition of the unconscious. You see, philosophy had to come first with its high priority on consciousness in order for us to get psychoanalysis. Philosophy is the precondition for psychoanalysis, disciplinarily speaking. Lacan's clear on this also at the start of seminar 14. No Descartes, no Freud. No emphasis on the cogito, no emphasis on the unconscious. Philosophy precedes psychoanalysis. But what philosophy lacks is a theory of the unconscious. Psychoanalysis then reminds us that the facts of human psychology cannot be conceived in the absence of, hear me now, the function of the subject defined as the effect of the signifier. Notice how quickly Lacan moves from framing the unconscious as the missing element of philosophy to this notion of a subject defined as an effect of the signifier. Here the processes are to be articulated, of course, as circular between the subject and the other. This is important. From the subject called to the other, to the subject of that which he has himself seen appear in the field of the other, from the other coming back. This process is circular, but of its nature without reciprocity. Because it is circular, it is disymmetrical. This is going to become the structural logic that gets Lacan into these early thoughts on alienation and separation. This circular but non-reciprocal relationship that the subject has with the other and vice versa. So hold that in mind. Hold in mind this circular relation that he's getting at here. It's not usually a passage here on 207 and seminar 11 that everybody highlights and focuses on the circularity without reciprocity that is happening in the relationship between the subject and the other. But it's incredibly important to understanding what Lacan's doing here. And remember, right out of the gates in seminar 14, it's all about structural logic. And that's what I'm pushing on here. I'm pushing us back to this stage in which the structural logics of alienation and separation start showing up. You'll realize, and I'm reading from Lacan here, that today I am taking you on a terrain of a on the terrain of a logic whose essential importance I hope to stress. The whole ambiguity of the sign derives from the fact that it represents something for someone. Um, you could mess, you can mess around with this a lot. Uh, Miller has done some pretty good work on this. I mean, you can trace it back to Charles Sanders' purse and this notion of the sign, which is something that Lacan is messing with. You might even say that Lacan's theory of his his linguistic theory is um, founded on three uh, pillars. Uh, one of them being Peirce, and Peirce's theory of, of the sign, um, the other, of course, being Saussure. But, but Peirce doesn't get enough, uh, get, get enough attention here. Um, Miller, to his great credit, ha has been somebody who has drawn this out. 
Um, uh, so Lacan is, is drawing on American traditions of semiotics. Um, uh, he's also looking at, of course, French traditions with Saussure. Everybody talks till they're blue in the face about Lacan's relationship to Saussure. Um, leave it to the American to say, don't forget about Charles Sanders' purse. This someone may be many things. It may be the entire universe. Um, do you know the etymology of the word universe? It's, it's really worth noting here. Um, unus is the Latin for one. And verse, you might think it has to do with language or something like that. It doesn't. It doesn't. It has to do with turning. Universe always means universalization or oneitization. It is the transformation, a turning or a transforming of multiples into singulars. That's really important here. Universe, when Lacan says it, and I, I don't have evidence of this, but, but I believe he's so tuned into language that it wouldn't be a stretch to say that when he uses the word universe, he had, very much has in mind the etymological um, understanding, the Latin understanding of, um, of, of universe, which is to make some things appear as one, to unite, if you will. Inasmuch as we have known for some time that information circulates in it as a negative of entropy. Another good word that not enough people have focused on in, in this work is the notion of entropy. Um, Another good way to put props, though, to, to Miller, though, because he I think he gets what Lacan's up to here with, with entropy. Any nod in which signs are concentrated, any node in which signs are concentrated, insofar as they represent something, may be taking, taken for a someone. What must be stressed at the outset is that a signifier is that which represents the subject for another signifier. <clears throat> here is Lacan's very important move is to say that a signifier is that which represents a subject for another signifier. The split subject can only be figured in the field of language, in the field of signification. And signifiers are always addressed. Lacan's point, though, is to shift from this notion of signifiers addressed to some ones, to people, to signifiers addressed to other signifiers. And what he's trying to remind us of there is that language, the field of signification, is a differential system. All these signifiers have differential relations to each other. They're all linked up. <clears throat> You'll oftentimes hear me referring to the experience of looking up words in the dictionary. So you can pick your word, take the word snake, look it up in the dictionary, and you'll find a host of other words that do not equal snake, but without which you can't understand snake. And some of those words you might not recognize, turning you to other words in that dictionary, looking those up. Snake, long, narrow, blah, blah, blah. Okay, what's long mean? What's narrow mean? These send you elsewhere in the dictionary. And pretty soon you have this network of differential relations. Differential because snake doesn't equal long. It has the attribute of long. And long doesn't equal the opposite of short. These are all differential relations. So signifier to signifier is a differential relation for Lacan. 
the subject can only show up phenomenologically in the form of a signifier. All signifiers are addressed, but they are not addressed to others. They are addressed to other signifiers. Incredibly important line in Lacan popping right here on page 207. It will be relevant to what we're doing in 14. The famous bumper sticker in 14 is the signifier cannot represent itself. It cannot signify itself. That's where he starts with 14. Note the connection here between the differential relations that all signifiers have to each other and Lacan's claim that the signifier cannot signify itself. And here, of course, what he's saying the signifier signifies, which is always a subject. Maybe. The signifier, producing itself in the field of the other, makes manifest the subject of its signification, but it functions as a signifier only to reduce the subject in question to being no more than a signifier, to petrify the subject in the same movement in which it calls the subject to function, to speak as subject. So what happens when you figure the subject in a signifier is you petrify it, you freeze it for a moment. Now, if you've got ears to hear, what we're talking about here is the relationship between the ego and the unconscious. There, strictly speaking, is the temporal pulsation in which is established that which is the characteristic of the departure of the unconscious as such, the closing. Now, I'm not going to get into this. We don't have time for it today. But remember what we were doing in our previous series on 11 and the drive. The unconscious has a certain structure. Yes, it's linguistic, not relevant here. The important part about the unconscious is it has a temporal structure, not just a spatialized structure. The logic of the unconscious, I would wager even more fundamentally, is temporal. And its logic, its temporal logic, is a pulsative logic. The unconscious is a, can be seen in openings that also close. Something opens up in discourse, and the unconscious is able to sleep, slip through. But that same thing can close. This is what transference means. It's a closure of an opening that could otherwise be opened to reveal the unconscious, to allow the unconscious to express itself. The point though here Lacan is really trying to get at is this notion of the subject that is going to fade, disappear, become petrified and fall in behind um, the signifier that represents it. One analyst felt this at another level and tried to signify it in, term, in a term that was new and which has never been exploited since in the field of analysis. Um, aphinesis, disappearance. This came up uh, in, in, this comes up in almost all of our um, seminars. This is a great little passage to get after it. Um, check out Ernest Jones, he says, who invented it, mistook it for something rather absurd, the fear of seeing desire disappear. Now, aphinesis is to be situated in a more radical way at the level at which the subject manifests himself in this movement of disappearance. Here is, the, here is the, 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 the idea to wrap your head around with the subject. The subject only shows up in the field of the symbolic as a disappearance, as a disappearing. It fades. That's how it shows up. Um, 
this wouldn't be the comet that you see streaking across the sky. It would be the tail of it. It's not the jet that you see moving across the sky, but the dissipating exhaust as it goes through. Um, for those of you that read the work of Walter Benjamin, um, this is you can wrap your head around this very quickly. Um, there's an erratic element um, to the subject. And for Lacan, um, the subject which manifests itself only in the movement of disappearance is fucking lethal. This movement of disappearance that I have described as lethal, in a quite different way, I have called this movement the fading of the subject. Now, we can keep going with this. We don't need to. We can scroll down to 209. And Lacan continues with, make no mistake, this is a logic that he's working through here. And once we arrive at the diagram on page 211, this famous diagram with two joining circles, this veil of alienation, you'll see why it matters. This diagram that everybody pops with all the time, what we're doing is we're setting ourselves up to discuss it, to look at it, to look at this second field of structural lack known as alienation, which is gonna be fundamental to understanding what Lacan is doing with fantasy. Not surprisingly on 209, fantasy comes up. You can see it starting to appear in section three. The math theme for fantasy is there. Then comes that of drive, all in order to show you on 209, the figure of the lozenge. But Lacan is only showing you that because he wants the bottom half, this V in the lower half that marks a veil constituted by the first operation where I wish to leave you for a moment. Veil, don't worry about it. It means either or. It's an either or that he's getting after here. Here, the either or is going to be between the subject at the level of being and the other at the level of meaning. The other meaning in the field of signification, the symbolic, the differential world of signifiers, so on and so forth. You know I'm moving fast here. You can feel I'm moving fast. I'm doing this for a reason. I don't want to spend a bunch of time in the past. I want to get us to the future for us, which is 14. But it is important in all things analytic um, to remember where you've been. Otherwise, you'll get lost on your way. Indeed, you may find these things are all rather silly. Lacan continues at the bottom of 209. And I want to emphasize this listening to this lecture, you may indeed find that all of this shit is rather silly. And I want to emphasize that. There are high-end scholars on this call who might not yet see the relevance of this. There are high-end clinicians on this call who might not yet see the practical import of this. What we're after today and in 11, you may find as all rather silly but hang tight. Let's see if we can flip that around. But logic is always a bit silly. In order to get us ready for 14, anytime you're reading these first few sections of seminar 14, if you start getting a little, I don't know, weirded out, return back to this passage. Logic is always a little bit silly. 
If one does not go to the root of the childish, one is inevitably precipitated into stupidity, as can be shown by innumerable examples, such as the supposed antinomies of reason. For example, the catalog of all the catalogs that do not include themselves. This is Russell's paradox. It's a paradox in set theory, and it's one that comes up numerous times at the start of seminar 14. The catalog of all catalogs that do not include themselves. Now it takes you a second to kind of wrap your head around that, but for Russell, it's a paradox because you have to wonder, is the catalog of all catalogs that do not contain themselves included in its own collection? Because if it is, then it has to be excluded because now it contains itself. This may all seem a little bit silly to you. I think what's really rad about this is when you get into seminar 14, Lacan just comes out multiple times and says, Russell's paradox isn't a paradox at all. There's nothing paradoxical about this. In the field of the unconscious, there's no such thing as a paradox. Contradiction doesn't exist. For now though, he's introducing us to Russell's paradox, which is going to become the fundamental philosophical moment that Lacan refers to in the first part of seminar 14. It's not Descartes, it's gonna be Russell's paradox. This catalog of all the catalogs that do not include themselves. Now, at this point, you might wanna pause and just go to Wikipedia and look up Russell's paradox and see all the beautiful symbols that come along with this stuff. Set theory is so much fun. And one arrives at an impasse, which I can't think why gives logicians vertigo. Notice this emphasis here. Lacan legit like doesn't understand why logicians are all freaked out about this stuff. But the answer is very obvious. Logicians emerging from the discipline of philosophy are freaked out by Russell's paradox because they do not have a conception of the unconscious. Yet the solution is very simple. It is that the signifier with which one designates the same signifier is evidently not the same signifier as the one with which one designates the other. This is obvious enough. I fucking love this stuff, isn't this fabulous? The word obsolete, insofar as it may signify that the word obsolete is itself an obsolete word, is not the same word obsolete in each case. This ought to encourage us to develop this veil, this either or that I have introduced to you. The subject is grounded in the either or of the first essential operation. To be sure, it is not all without interest to develop it here before so vast an audience, since it is a question of nothing less than the operation that we call alienation. Scroll down a couple paragraphs. Alienation consists in this veil, this either or, which if you do not object to the word condemned, I will use it, condemns the subject to appearing only in that division, which it seems to me, I have just articulated sufficiently by saying, if it appears on one side as meaning produced by the signifier, it appears on the other as aphanesis, as fading, as disappearance. 
So as you move forward here, symbolic logic comes up again. The theory here is joining. And that is the structural logic of the Eulerian circles that you see on page 211 of seminar 11. That logic here is one of joining. It's about what is mutually exclusive in both of those circles. Not the little sliver in the middle, this field of non-meaning, but it's about what is contained in the field of meaning that is not in the field of being and what is in the field of being that is not in the field of meaning. That's what he's doing here with joining. Don't get confused here. It's about what's mutually exclusive in both sets, not what they share. That's why the emphasis here is on an either or. You can be in the field of meaning and appear before others, or you can be in the field of being, but then you lose connection to appearance. We'll mess with this in a second. For now, let's just unfold it a little bit. The field of being, the left side of this circle, is the field of the enunciating subject. For those of you that have seen or listened to our podcast on the subversion of the subject, this is the embodied speaker. It's also going to be the field of truth for Lacan. It's where you don't think you're thinking. And it's where you exist as a result as the unconscious. On the other side, on the field of meaning, here's the field of the big other. This is not the enunciating subject. This is the space of the grammatical subject. The I that appears in language when I, as an enunciating speaker, say, I'm the kind of person that loves snakes. That's the grammatical subject. There's the enunciating subject that felt compelled to tell you that. And then there's the grammatical subject, which is the sense of self that is figured in language when I say the sentence, I'm the kind of person who loves snakes. And I'm using my fingers to indicate that what's happening here is a happening in the field of language. And there's a split here, a split between how I'm asking you to see me when I talk to you about my purported love of snakes and the part of me that feels compelled to be seen as someone who loves snakes. Why? in this moment and addressed to you, am I so intent on being seen as somebody who likes snakes? That question of why, not what, why I would say such a thing, puts you on the, on the path to truth, the truth of the subject. The question of what, in other words, what do I want from you and what do I want you to see me as, in this field of wanting recognition from others is something different. It doesn't put you on the path of truth. It puts you in the field of knowledge. What do I want you to know about me is an easy way to think about this. But for Lacan, truth and knowledge are not species of the same kind. If the field of being is where you don't think you're thinking, the field of meaning is where you think you are thinking. If the field of being is that of unconscious truth, the field of meaning is typically that of ego resistance. It's where you think you're thinking 
at the level of the ego, at the level of consciousness, self-consciousness, cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am, that's occurring in the field of meaning. Lacan's point is, wherever you think you're thinking, rest assured, you do not exist. It's where you don't think you're thinking that in fact you have your most profound thoughts and it's there that you find the being of yourself. Or because we're always operating within the field of the symbolic, this is like another turn of this screw, it's actually a field of non-being. In order to have this conversation about the place where I don't think I'm thinking, namely the unconscious, it can't be a place that supports my being because that isn't going to work. It's going to be a space that figures me always in a state of non-being. That's a little more philosophical than we need to get, but it's important here because it's a running theme throughout Lacan. Where you think you're thinking, I guarantee you're not. It's where you don't think you're thinking that all your great thoughts are happening. If you think you're thinking, rest assured you are not. And you can hear that in multiple ways. This veil, this um, process of alienation, um, you get a couple other really good examples of this. Um, in place of being and meaning, you get that famous um, uh, uh, paradox of your money or your life. So you're in an alleyway and somebody rolls up with a gun and says, your money or your life. And you get to choose. But here's the dilemma. If you choose to keep your money, you're still going to get shot losing your life. And the first thing the crook's going to do is pick your pocket and take your money. If you choose to keep your money, you're going to lose both your money and your life. If, however, you choose life over money and you get out your money and you give it to the crook, guess what? You've got your life, but now you have to live without your money. Lacan's point here is that to choose life is to choose a life of lack, where you have lost something. Yeah, you get to live, but you get to live in a field of incompletion, in a field of lack, in a field structured by desire. The same, of course, is true um, in, the, in the older, um, more Hegelian theme of uh, your, your freedom or your life. Um, if you think back to the phenomenology of spirit, the, 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 one of the dilemmas of the master is that they show up and they meet somebody and they're like, okay, this is going to go down. Either you're my master and I'm your slave, or I'm the master and you're the slave, but it's going to go down. It's a fight to the death. And you can choose in that moment. You can choose your freedom or your life. If you choose your freedom against a stronger opponent, in other words, I will not be your slave. Well, okay. Prepare to lose your life as well. If, however, you choose life over freedom, in other words, if you accept servitude, 
fine, I'll bake the cake for you. Just stop hitting me with the stick. I'd rather live without my freedom than choose my freedom and lose my life. This is another way to get at the dilemma of the split subject. If you choose the field of being, you lose almost everything. If you choose the field of meaning, you have to live a life of lack in the field of the symbolic where you can only ever show up in petrified, faded, fucked up form. I didn't come here to talk to you about this, but it's important stuff for us to discuss. There's no doubt about it. Because it brings us to this third field of structural lack known as separation. I'm willing to move forward here because there's so much good stuff out there on alienation, on these very passages. And you'll notice if you check out our lectures on seminar 11, we don't spend much time working on this stuff on alienation. We go straight for the drive at the end of seminar 11. We don't mess around with this stuff. There's lots of abundant secondary literature, some of which is good. Um, be careful. Separation, though, um, is, is what's at stake here. This third field of structural lack with which we began today. And I told you that sexuation has to do with a real lack relative to the living organism. Alienation has to do with its symbolic imaginary lack relative to the subject. Separation, though, Yes, the lack experienced by the subject is relevant, but in the field of separation, what also emerges is a lack in the field of the other, the barred other, barred big other, shows up in the field of separation. And this for us is fundamental to understanding how Lacan starts seminar 14. The primary stake in understanding seminar 14 is understanding why and how the big other is barred. But it starts being introduced to us here in seminar 11. So let's think about this for a second. The structural logic of separation is not joining, which we saw as that of alienation, where you focus on the mutually exclusive elements in each set. The structural logic of separation is that of intersection or production. It's an emphasis, in other words, on the elements that belong to both sets. So your money or your life, being or meaning, freedom or your life, these are either ors. If you choose one, you can't have the other. If you choose the other, you can't have the one. Ooh, see how I just did that? Here though, in the field of separation, what matters is the way that these two spheres sets intersect. Zebras and penguins. Now there's some shit that zebras do that's just about zebras. And there's some shit that penguins do that's just about penguins. But by God, if there aren't some intersections between these two species, both are warm-blooded, both tend to privilege two colors, black and white. 
And both, I mean, think about this with zebras and penguins. They are, they're spectacularly collective. What zebras and penguins do as groups is just nuts. For predators of every stripe, lions and winters alike. What intersects in separation is again the subject and the other for Lacan. And it is again occurring in this field of lack, at the level of lack. But it's the other's lack more than the subjects that is at stake in the experience known as separation. And here Lacan is driving at one key concept, the desire of the other a key concept that for him was fundamental in seminar 10 on anxiety. It is the other's desire more than the subjects, the other's lack more than the subjects that is popping in the experience of separation. It's the desire of the other and the subjects encounter with this desire that occurs in separation. So check out pages. 213 to 214, even up to 215. The very end of this chapter in seminar 11 on alienation is, is a terrific um, foray into this stuff, even though at the end there's kind of this weird detour into self mortification. Um, not irrelevant, but uh, might be a little far afield. But check out page 213. Lacan tries to spell out some of this stuff, again with the emphasis on logic. Given the time, I can do no more than introduce the second operation. Here, it's separation. It completes the circularity of the relation of the subject to the other, but an essential twist is revealed in it. Here again is that passage with which we began, the circular but non-reciprocal relationship between the subject and the other. I'm really working hard to get us here in a logical mindset in a very strict sense that is the only stake in, these, um, in this opening part of our lecture. Whereas the first phase, alienation, is based on the substructure of joining the either or, mutually exclusive. The second is based on the substructure called intersection or product. It is situated precisely in that same lunula in which you find the form of the gap, the rim. The intersection of the two sets is constituted by the elements that belong to the two sets. Set, 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 set. Lacan is thinking again back to not just any form of symbolic logic. He is thinking back to set theory. Lacan does two great things with math. First, he develops his own algebra, which for him is the way that you is one of the ways that psychoanalysis can be shown to be a science because it can be mathematized. Lacanian psychoanalysis has these algebras not just to keep to help everybody keep his formulas straight. It's him showing you that the basic laws of mathematics can be applied to psychoanalysis. That's how fucking scientific psychoanalysis is. You can mathematize that shit. Show me the mathematics of literary theory. The other thing that Lacan does that's really smart with mathematics is he draws on set theory. 
And this is exactly how you get, again, someone like Alain Badiou. Badiou is better than Lacan at math and better than Lacan at one particular kind of math, which is set theory. Badiou is brilliant with this stuff. And what he's able to do with Lacan is what Lacan couldn't do for himself because Lacan, frankly speaking, is not that great of a mathematician. Thank goodness you got Badiou to read next. The intersection of two sets is constituted by the elements that belong to the two sets. It is here that the second operation in which the subject is led by this dialectic takes place. Again, we're talking about separation here. It is as essential to define the second operation as the first, because it is there that we shall see the emergence of the field of the transference. I shall call it introducing my second new term here, separation. So what I'm trying to do is call us right back to the point in Lacan's thought when he really starts thinking hard about the structure of lack experienced in the field of the big other, a lack at the center, perhaps even right on the periphery, on the edge of the symbolic. And then notice this move he makes, separare, to separate. Lacan is never too far removed from the etymology of the terms he chooses. Here's a great example of him drawing out what it means, showing you why he's choosing this particular word. I would point out at once the equivocation of the se parare, of the se parare in parer in all the fluctuating meanings it has in French. It means not only to dress oneself, but also to defend oneself to provide oneself with what one needs, to be on one's guard, and I will go further still, and Latinus will bear me out. To say parere is the whoop and to be engendered, which is involved here. To separate is in some very real sense for the subject to learn how to dress themselves and defend themselves, and in so doing, to engender themselves. The separation at stake in separation, a separation that would only occur, I, I submit, um, when the fundamental fantasy is traversed, which we'll come to in a second, is a separation of the subject from the big other. When you can dress, defend, and in so doing, engender yourself, you're separating from the big other. How, at this level, has the subject to procure himself? For that is the origin of the word that designates the Latin to engender. And then we get some more etymology, to put into the world. We can go on and on with this stuff, but um, we're short on time and I'm moving fast. So let's keep that up. At the bottom of the next paragraph, Lacan talks about this notion of intersection again. We shall see how it emerges from the superimposition of two lacks. That is what we're after here. That's what we're looking for. There are two lacks at work in separation, the subjects and the others, and they are superimposed. So what is the shared element between subject and other? where they intersect. 
and the field of separation is what allows us to talk about this, is in the field of lack. What they both share is an experience of loss, of lack, of missing something. And what Lacan's gonna say is they share this and insofar as they share it, these lacks are somehow superimposed on each other. They're wrapped up in each other. A lack is encountered by the subject in the other, in the very intimation that the other makes to him by his discourse. In other words, by simply speaking to the child, the parent demonstrates that they are lacking. In the intervals of the discourse of the other, there emerges in the experience of the child something that is radically mappable, namely, he is saying this to me, but what does he want? He is saying this to me, but what does he want? Already you can see the basic definition of fantasy popping up here. What does the other want? The mathem of the fantasy, a split subject living their life in relation to what they think other people want from them, for them. In this interval intersecting the signifiers, which forms part of the very structure of the signifier, is the locus of what in other registers of my exposition I have called metonymy. Don't worry about that. It is there that what we call desire crawls, slips, escapes like the ferret. Worry about that. The, met the metonymic structure he's talking about there, think more along the lines of a ferret that crawls, slips, and escapes. The desire of the other is apprehended by the subject in that which does not work in the lacks of the discourse of the other, also fundamental here. It's in the field of errancy where something malfunctions. It's in inoperativity, inoperative moments in the symbolic that you see the desire of the other. And you see this being played out, Lacan says, in all the child's whys. Now, people say, oh, Lacan's so tough to read. He never gives examples. Nah, man, the truth is people who say that shit don't read Lacan carefully enough. Here's a great example. All of those children asking why. And if you've ever had this interaction with a kid, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Iris, the sky is blue. Why? Because the artist told us it was blue. Why? Because they wanted to paint a picture. Why? Because they were hurt when they were children. Why? Because hurt people hurt people, Iris. All of the child's whys reveal not so much an avidity for the reason of things as a testing of the adult, a why are you telling me this? That's what's up. When little kids are asking you why, 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 they're not trying to learn about the fucking world. They're trying to feel you out. It's not about the world. It's about the other. It's about you. Those questions are addressed to you, and they are aimed at one 
field of experience alone, and that is your experience of desire. Why, why, why is the same question over and over again. Why are you telling me this? Ever resuscitated from its base, which is the enigma of the adult's desire. All of the child's questionings of why show them trying to sort out the enigma of the parent's desire. Not just what you want and why you want, but why do you want it from me? Now, you can see how we also, again, are butting up against fantasy from another direction. It's the child's imagination of what the other might want that's driving a lot of this, which is why ownership of your own projections onto others is important here. Let's see if we can summarize some of this. Main point, the desire of the other is signified and it finds its signifier, think the upper graph of desire, signification of lack in the other. It finds its signification, this lack that is the cause of the other's desire. If you wanna know where it comes from, look for the spots where the other starts to break down in that which does not work. It's in what's lacking in the discourse of the other, in the symbolic, that we start seeing questions about the desire of the other being put. So here is then the underlying question in all this. What exactly is missing and or malfunctioning? What is lost and or errant in the symbolic? And where in lived experience do we encounter this? This is the fundamental question of separation. At least the fundamental, I mean, structural, logical question of separation. If it's true that the signifier of lack in the other emerges in that which does not work, or in an, in an evidence of lack, an ex videre of lack, a, a showing of lack, where do we see this? What does it look like when it pops up? Answering this question about the fundamental structural logic of the lack in the other is precisely what Lacan sets out to do in seminar 14. And I say sets out because we're at the beginning of this seminar. And he is again operating at the level of a lack in the other whose logic is structural. Teasing this out, of his first lectures is what we're gonna try and do next. But you know what? I would be remiss if we didn't at least finish what we were doing with seminar 11. Because the question I have in reading this here on page 214 to 215 is how does the split subject reply to signifiers of lack in the big other? Now, this is the, kind of a little detour from where we're headed, but it's kind of lit if you think about it. What Lacan here says 
is that the subject superimposes their lack upon that of the other and assumes that what the other wants, what the parent wants, is the child's own disappearance, the child's own death. This is mainly for the clinicians in the room. What comes of this superimposition of the subject's lack on the other's lack, the child's experience of split subjectivity on the evidence they see that their parents are also split. When the child superimposes their experience of lack on the evidence of the other's lack that they encounter, what they come up with is a fantasy of their own death. Lacan repeats that, the fantasy of one's death on page 214 and 215. The parent not only wants my lack, wants what I don't have. Those of you that were here for seminar 10, you know what I'm talking about. This is the cause of anxiety. When your lack has been taken from you by a bigger, battered, desirous other. One of the people who listened to that um, seminar, believe it or not, they, they got a, a tattoo of a praying mantis on their knee and it's fucking fire too. This tattoo, when her leg is open, it's on the side of her knee, the praying mantis is all up and shit. But then when her leg closes, the praying mantis is in a totally different position. It's phenomenal. It was just a phenomenal fucking piece. Um, wow. Uh, the bigger, badder other that shows up desirous and unhinged is according to the child after one thing in particular, um, the child's lack, which is to say the child's ability to desire. Again, I'm not going to go into this, but it's part of what's happening here. The parent not only wants my lack, which produces a state of anxiety around that, but, and here's the important part Lacan's adding, they also want me to be absent from their life from life itself. They want me to become lack, this fantasy of death. Here's what I would add. Neither of these experiences, the anxiety that comes from encountering the desire of a bigger other, nor the self-mortifying fantasy that it fuels is bearable. Anxiety and self-mortification are unbearable. So what the subject, the child, here does is they build another more palatable fantasy. And this is what Lacan means whenever he talks about the fundamental fantasy. The fundamental fantasy of the child is not that the parent wants them to be dead. The fundamental fantasy is a defense against that superimposition of lack that results in this angst-filled, self-mortifying fantasy. The fundamental fantasy is a reaction to that. The fundamental fantasy is not that the other is lacking and thus desirous. The fundamental fantasy is that the other is in fact complete, whole, whole, and as a result, does not experience desire, but can instead issue demands. The fundamental fantasy shows the child saying, not why are you saying this to me? Not what do you want from me? But instead something a little different. 
I know you know what you want from me. So out with it. Demand it of me. This is the fundamental fantasy, that the big other is not desirous, but demanding. That the big other is not barred, but whole. Not lacking, but full and complete. As we know, this bottoms out because ultimately in the bottom of the barrel of this fundamental fantasy is only one demand. Show me you're castrated. Psychoanalysis is about traversing this fundamental fantasy in a way that if you want to keep playing with the verse etymology, reverses its development, allowing the subject to recover and recover from the experience of desirous others and anxious selves. This, in terms of a therapeutic technique, is what Lacan envisions as the end of analysis. It's not the end of experience, but it signals the end of analysis when the fundamental fantasy can be marched back to this other scarier, more unbearable fantasy of a desirous other. A fantasy that the other is desirous and what they fundamentally want is for you not to exist. Recovering that experience and recovering from it is the horizon of separation signaling the end of analysis. Now, before we take a break, I wanna add one more thing. Beyond this threshold, this traversing of the fundamental fantasy, there is something else. And this might even be the fourth fold in the three structural lacks with which we started. There is something for the subject beyond the fundamental fantasy after analysis is complete. Not desire and anxiety, but drive and its satisfaction. And with drive and its satisfaction, the subject has access to an experience of jouissance, of enjoyment. That is, hear me now, desublimated, but non-transgressive, deeply embodied, but thoroughly mediated through the symbolic, and recuperative of libido, this lost polymorphous, typically perverse experience of proto-enjoyment. But all of that is occurring always within the field of castration. And we don't have time to get into all of this, but it's a fitting cap on the work that we're doing here. Again, um, if, if, you, if this trips your trigger and you're really interested, go back, check out our lectures on the drive. This is all developed there. But I wanna show you that 
beyond sexuation, alienation, and separation. There is this other experience, this other field of jouissance that is accessed by way of the drive, where it's not desire that motivates subjectivity, but something different. The word we have for that is the drive. And I would ask you to also think about this logic as circular. What the fourth field of structural lack and Lacan does in the field of the drive is it brings us back to the very first one with which we began, sexuation. What the drive allows us to do is to recover and restore the libido that we lost when we had to pass through the bipolar straits of sexuality. That's why these lacks are circular. If there's a fourth, and I believe there is, at the level of the erogenous zone, at the level of the unconscious, all these openings and mouths on the human body, it opens us back up onto the lack um, experienced in sexuation. Uh, let's pause there and take some questions. I know there are gonna be some. Uh, let me hear what you got to say. Got a quick question, Sam. <clears throat> and and I might be reading this wrong, and please tell me if I am. Uh, so the child's desire to vanish from the parents is that because then the child becomes the desire of the parents, becomes a lack, like they that by by disappearing, then they become the parents' lack, and therefore like they're almost immortalized. Then does that make sense? I could see that. Yeah, I mean there is um. um there's something fundamentally narcissistic, maybe, right. um, maybe even primarily narcissistic about assuming that you're, the, that you're the object of all of your parents, you know, X, Y, and Z, whatever they feel, it's because of something that has to do with you, um, even if it is your own mortification. Right, even if right. you want you dead, at least you're wanted. Right. <laughs> Yeah, that, that was my problem with that 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 TV show, Thirteen Reasons, that talked about teen suicide. Where it's like the whole show centered around everybody coming to deal with their their how they confronted the person who committed suicide. So it kind of showed that like if you commit suicide, everybody around you then all of a sudden cares for you. Yeah, there's some great work. Um, I'm on a dissertation committee right now with a doctoral uh, student in clinical psychology. Um, she's doing gr a great project on suicide letters using um, the discourse of the analyst as a way to kind of like work through the um, the aggressive, desirous mm -hmm. logics that are occurring at the level of the suicide letter. And of course, not just at the level of the letter, but at the level of the act that may or may not mm -hmm. be passed to after the letter. So um, there, there's new stuff that's going to be coming out on this pretty soon. I really hope this becomes a, a book project. Um, yeah, it's, it's, such a, it's such a wild, wild topic. But I think you're right. Yeah, even if they want me dead, at least I'm wanted. 
214 and 215 is where we were, by the way, if you're if you're wondering where this is coming from. Um, it, you know, at some level too, Lacan is even asking the question like, is it even possible? The child is even wondering at this level, is it even possible for you to lose me? Could that even happen? You know, people talk about like childhood and, you know, oh my gosh, it's so great and all this kind of stuff. I kind of doubt it, man. I mean, being an infant, it sounds fucking terrifying. And being, being a child at this level and having these fantasies, but not being able to bring them to words. I mean, it's just a, it's just a wonder that we all don't die of strokes before the age of three. What a terrifying experience. And then you all think like, you think middle school was bad. You think high school was bad. Holy fuck, imagine being three. Um, great, thank you for that question. What else is on your mind out there? If you haven't already, you should read the last sentence of the chapter that we just spent an hour and a half working through. The last sentence on page 215. I think I have sufficiently stressed the two elements that I have tried to present today in this new and fundamental logical argument. Lacan the logician. This series could be called Logics on Lacan. And here it is, non-reciprocity and the twist in the return, a circular structure that is non-reciprocal, probably at the level of alienation and with a twist at the end in the field of separation. Thanks for listening to Lectures on Lacan. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music.